Hi everyone, this is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. In our podcast, you'll find candid, unedited interviews with both high-performing entrepreneurs and other thought leaders from both for-profit and not-for-profit enterprises. You can find links to this, other podcasts, and other immediately useful resources on our website, which is bigelowllc.com. A little less than a month ago, we convened the 2018 Bigelow Forum, an annual learning community exclusively of private company owner-managers from a really wide variety of industries around the country. We covered a lot of interesting ground at this year's forum, and our featured speaker was Steven Pinker, the Harvard psychologist, linguist, and popular science author. I first met Steven and had the chance to hear him at this year's TED conference in Vancouver and thought he'd be a terrific speaker for our forum. Most of his 10 books have been New York Times bestsellers, including his latest work called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, and Progress. This book has turned out to be very provocative, inspiring lots of vigorous discussion at writers' forums around the country and at the Bigelow Forum itself. After Pinker's brief presentation to us, he and I sat down and had this interview for about an hour, including taking some audience questions. We discuss his inspiration for writing this work in the first place, some of the arguments that have been made by readers, thinkers, academics, and politicians for or against his theses. His answers are quite personal, and I found them very entertaining. I even gave him a quiz on some famous psychologist quotes, the results of which turn out to be quite surprising. As all of our podcast interviews, this one was unscripted, spontaneous, and unedited. Pinker did not know what my or any of the audience questions were going to be. You may hear a bit of background noise since it was recorded live in front of an audience at the Bigelow Forum. I hope you really love it. Thank you, Stephen. Would you like to sit down? I would be very happy to sit down. Let me ask you, um, and when we think about uh, a scholar with your background, I wonder what made you uh, think about uh, studying this question in the first place? What was the motivation, your inspiration? Yeah, one, one thing led to another. Uh, I was, um, I'm a cognitive scientist, so I'm interested in how the mind works, and I studied, uh, concentrated in language. Uh, Ned Sahin, who is uh, here in the audience, uh, did a dissertation, for example, on the flow of information in the uh, human brain as people uh, process words in, uh, and, and sentences. Um, so how does, uh, how does someone who's interested in you know, irregular verbs uh, yeah. end up uh, with graphs on human progress? It, uh, it began when I wrote a book called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. And the blank slate refers to the ancient idea that there is no such thing as human nature, that our minds are blank slates, and that all of our thoughts and feelings come from uh, programming from parents and culture and the, and the environment. I argued against the blank slate, uh, but, uh, and I tried to explain why it, it's so appealing to kind of right-thinking people that, there's no, that nothing is innate, that men and women are identical, that we don't have any innate uh, urges or drives like uh, aggression or revenge, all of which I thought were implausible. And I noted that there's a, a kind of a a moral or political fear of the idea of human nature, that people worry, well, if, if we have these ugly 
dark sides. Uh, does that mean that progress, the hope for progress is, is uh, uh, a waste of time? That you, know, you can't change human nature, we're gonna be exploiting each other and killing each other and going to war forever. And I, I just noted in a page or two, well, no, no, it doesn't mean that. For one thing, uh, <coughs> the human nature is complex. The brain has many interacting systems. And even if we have, for example, a circuit for rage and revenge and dominance, we also have the ca capacity for empathy, for reasoning, for self-control. And what actually happens in human life depends on an interplay between all of these different parts of the, of the brain. And also, there can't really, I, I just noted in a paragraph or two, there can't really be a debate over whether uh, progress is possible because we know that it's happened. And I mentioned, well, you know, the Soviet Union went out of existence peacefully and the world abolished slavery. And I, I cited one um, kind of factoid that I'd come across that uh, rates of homicide in England uh, had fallen by a factor of 35 since the Middle Ages. So there, that's proof that progress can take place. You can't debate whether it can or, or can't. It has taken place. And when I just repeated this observation on a, uh, in a blog post, um, various uh, scholars and professors from uh, all over the world wrote to me and they said, well, you know, you're, you're right about that, but you could have made, uh, given even more examples. Did you know that it's not just England where homicide rates uh, fell over the course of history, but also Germany and Italy and Scandinavia Someone else said, well, did you know that uh, rates of rape and sexual uh, violence have come down? Someone else said, did you know that rates of spanking have come down? Uh, someone else, uh, most shockingly, that rates of death in war have come down, something you could never guess from the headlines. Uh, it's only when you see the graph, at least for, for me. So I realized that there was this, um, this really surprising and important story that uh, had not been told that um, I just happened to stumble across by all these people writing to me, namely that all of these quantitative measures show violence has decreased over the course of history. Number one, that's a story that people should know about. Number two, as a psychologist, I wanted to try my best to explain it. Given that human nature doesn't change, how have we managed to kill each other and rape each other and go to war less than our ancestors did? So that resulted in a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Why Violence Has Declined, uh, came out in 2011. And after I published that book, I, came, I kind of had a, another data-driven uh, epiphany, which is that it isn't just uh, measures of, by measures of violence that the world has gotten better, but uh, again, looking at graphs, uh, you see that uh, you know, poverty has gone down and illiteracy has gone down and leisure time has gone up and, and the world has gotten better in all these ways that you can't appreciate from the headlines. And that kind of impelled me to write Enlightenment Now, kind of a, a sequel. Uh, also impelled by uh, what I found as a, a kind of a nervousness or almost a hostility of many people toward the idea that science can uh, illuminate human affairs. There are a lot of, of journalists and uh, critics and academics who just hate the idea of science being applied to history or politics or art, that science should just stay in its box and study you know, molecules. Uh, and, and I think that science should be uh, applied to as much of life as possible, not least in just showing us things quantitatively in graphs that you can't get from reading the news. And that was another motivation. Here's a quiz. Who said this? My new favorite book of all time. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that is uh, uh, Bill Gates. So you have to appreciate, Stephen, you're in a room full of seasoned, successful business owners. And Bill Gates is probably the most, one of the most iconic entrepreneurs of our lives. What do you think it was specifically that made him comment that way? Well, he um, uh, also is a, a believer that uh, science is uh, our best way of understanding the world and is a potential, um, a tremendous source of improvement of human welfare. That if we uh, try to solve problems, uh, applying ingenuity and know-how, and of course money, uh, then, then we can succeed. And Bill Gates has been, uh, about 10 years ago, I wrote an article on human moral sense in which I had a trick question. Who is more moral, Mother Teresa or Bill Gates? Now, at the time, by the way, Gates was despised. He was one of the world's most hated people. That was when there were I hate Gates websites and someone put through a pie in his face and you know, uh, everyone hated you know, the, the, the dancing paperclip and the blue screen of death and he was just, uh, Mr. Evil. But I, I pointed out that he had begun the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He set himself the problem of figuring out how can my f the fortune, when I give it away, cause the greatest advance in human uh, happiness and welfare. And he kind of crunched the numbers and figured that <coughs> the biggest source of gain was um, reducing um, disease and illiteracy in the developing world. He's been credited since then with saving 100 million lives. Uh, now, that is a moral hero, I, I think. Uh, most people don't appreciate it, uh, that, but uh, um, uh, you know, I'm willing to credit him with, with that, and the book is about how efforts like that have, uh, have uh, uh, succeeded. That's great, that's great. So um, most of us in this room, I'm guessing, uh, get um, a lot of our day-to-day -day information from some kind of news media, online or physical. Um, and you know, we listen to uh, negative public radio or constantly negative news, um, but yet um, we're, we're sort of bombarded by it, 7 by 24, right? And I wonder if you could speak a little bit or say a little bit about uh, more about availability. Yeah, it's, um, we, we, our, our minds uh, didn't evolve to deal with, um, with uh, rich information, quantitative information. Uh, we, um, we, we evolved uh, in a, a hunter-gatherer world. Uh, even in uh, more recent times, I mean, even if the mind continued to evolve uh, after the development of, of um, uh, farming and, and uh, cities, we still are uh, not equipped to understand the world through what we now know to be our best way of understanding the world, namely through, through uh, data. But still, the human mind is driven by images, by anecdotes, by narratives, by, by stories. Skilled communicators, of course, know that. Uh, you, you, it's not easy to get people to change their minds by showing them data. Graphs are, are, are one way, but still uh, a, good, uh, a good story or a good image sticks in the mind. Um, if the images and anecdotes are aligned with the data, then that is a, a effective and responsible communication. But often the images and anecdotes are, uh, can be highly misleading. They may not be representative of what's happening in the world. It may just be the brain's search engine coughing up some things that pop to mind quickly that may not reflect the way things are in, uh, in reality because of the distortions of uh, journalism. But, I say, but when I say that, I don't mean that there's any nefarious plot among journalists. They're, uh, they're, they're, 
the mainstream journalists are responsible and conscientious, but just in the nature of journalism, that if it consists of reporting events rather than trends, it can uh, bring out the worst in our, the, the bugs in our brain so that we don't really understand uh, how the world is working. It's why people are afraid of things that uh, kill almost no one, like terrorism, uh, like, uh, like plane crashes, and uh, underestimate things that kill a lot of people. Uh, like uh, like air pollution, like uh, like falls, like uh, opioids, like texting while driving. Uh, we don't have we don't get get a, a sudden uh, chill. Our blood doesn't run cold. We don't get butterflies in our uh, stomach when we see uh, someone texting while driving. Uh, we we might when we see a, a spider or a snake or a, uh, look down from the top floor of a skyscraper. So our our uh, gut feelings are out of sync with what our best knowledge tells us are the actual risks in the world. And conversely, it also means that the improvements uh, aren't appreciated. A lot of improvements consist of things not happening. Like, uh, you know, how many of you, for example, have given any thought to the fact that there has not been a war in Southeast Asia for 35 years? Now, uh, for those of us who grow up, grew up with the war in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, this is an amazing development. This was the bloodiest part of the world for decades. Tore American society apart, killed two to three million people, uh, and you know, miraculously, they've gone 35 years with no war. But there's not a headline saying, Vietnam is not at war. Uh, just one example of, uh, of how our uh, stor the story appreciating part of our brain can miss what's happening if it doesn't make a good story. So, so um, we get it, we see the graphs when we look at the data with you, uh, but is part of your thesis that there's kind of an irrepressible force in the world going along, pushing things towards progress? Yeah, no, that would be, uh, that, you know, that'd be a miracle. That, that'd be a, a, a you know, mystical, and, and an <clears throat> I certainly don't believe in that. In fact, quite the opposite. The forces of the universe uh, act to, to grind us down. Uh, entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, that uh, there are many more ways for things to go wrong than for things to go right, left to their own devices without input of information and energy. Um, things fall apart, they, 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 they wear out. Uh, temperature differences uh, uh, d decrease and there's less ability to do useful work. So it's the, the, the laws of the universe make things worse. But knowledge can make things better. Information combined with, uh, with energy. So it, 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 uh, progress doesn't happen by itself. In general, it won't happen unless we increase our knowledge, <coughs> unless we have sources of energy and deploy our knowledge. Now, of course, knowledge can be deployed to make things worse, and often is. But if we have as our goal, let's make people better off and understand how the world works uh, more, more effectively, then we can gradually succeed. We can eke out uh, increments. So I just want you to all know that we're going to go to audience Q&A soon. Um, and you could be thinking about what your questions are. Um, Kahneman, Gilbert, many others have written on um, hedonic adaption, hedonic treadmill. And um, I wonder if you could just say a few words about that. Yeah. Turns out the, the hedonic treadmill has probably been exaggerated. Uh, I showed you a graph from two economists, um, Justin Wolfers and uh, Betsy uh, Stevenson, 
uh, when you, if, which showed that cloud of arrows uh, plotting life satisfaction against uh, GDP per capita. Hard to believe. Yeah, which, I mean, I, I was shocked when I saw it. And by the way, we do have to remember that that graph plotted happiness against um, uh, log of uh, income, so that the, if it was plotted on regular axes, it would bend over. So part of the reason, if the hedonic treadmill were true, hedonic treadmill, uh, that's the idea that um, when good things happen, you just adapt for them, you adapt to them, you take them for granted, uh, and so no matter how well off or uh, badly off you are, you're equally happy or miserable. Uh, that's the treadmill. Um, and it turns out that the treadmill is partly an illusion, partly from the fact that rich countries are on the part of the curve that bends over, so that increases in income have a much smaller uh, kick to happiness than uh, in poor countries. Uh, and also from some early studies that turned out were, were not sufficiently powered, uh, power in the sense of having too few uh, subjects. So there was a study that showed that people who win the lottery 10 years down the line are no happier than yeah. they were before. Yeah, it's often uh, quoted. Yeah, not true. Uh, it's people who win the happier lottery really are happier. <laughs> uh, so, um, so there is, I mean, it's not to say that, they, that the idea is, is completely false. I mean, we, do t we often do tend to kind of pocket our, our good fortune. We, we and probably all kind of get that. Yeah, we, are, we find new things to get upset about. Uh, we're pretty good at that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but it was probably exaggerated, okay. the, uh, the hedonic treadmill. Good to hear. Uh, one of my favorite works of all time is uh, E.O. Wilson's Consilience. And one of the things you didn't address is what he calls the unity of knowledge. Yeah. Could you speak to that? Yeah, that was, uh, in fact, uh, I, I alluded to it when, I, when you asked about what, what led me to write the book, and I said one of them was the... Um, the anxiety about science being applied to uh, human life. Right. Um, in advocating in Enlightenment Now, in a, in, a, in a pretty hefty chapter just called Science, for the integration of science with, uh, with everything else, uh, that was the same message as Consilience in uh, E.O. Wilson's book by that name. It came out, in the, uh, I think, in the uh, mid-'90s. Consilience is a term that he uh, revived that, that means the unity of knowledge. There isn't a... Uh, sharp division, as you see in a university, say between the humanities on one side, the sciences on the other side, maybe the social sciences not knowing where they belong. Uh, and Wilson argued, and I, and I agreed, that, that knowledge is continuous. Uh, this is actually, even before Wilson said it, there was a, a famous book, came out in 1962, called The Two Cultures, by a British scientist uh, and government advisor named C.P. Snow, Charles Piercy Snow. Um, and uh, Snow was uh, uh, the two cultures being this, the culture of science on the one hand, culture of literary critics and cultural analysts uh, on the other. And uh, S Snow made the point, he said that if you're, uh, he was talking about, about snooty Britain in the 1960s. He said, if you, uh, if you were to say, um, uh, you know, I I've never read anything by Shakespeare, you'd be considered you know, such a, a, a boor, such a, a slob that you would couldn't show your face in polite society. But if you said, uh, I've, I, I don't know what the second law of thermodynamics is, or I don't care, he said, that, then uh, you could even be proud of not being ignorant to the second law of thermodynamics. And, he's, and he said, I consider that to be as ignorant as, um, as not knowing who Shakespeare was. Right. 
Uh, he gave that as, as, a, as an example of how, at least in British society at the time, science was kind of looked down on as, you know, that's the kind of thing that those you know, grubby plumbers and engineers worry about, but we sophisticated people you know, don't have to care about it. So Snow said that that was a big problem, uh, and that uh, way ahead of his time, he said not only should, before, before Wilson and, and you know, way before me, he said not only should science and uh, the rest of life be more integrated, but science has fantastic potential for improving human welfare, particularly in uh, health and uh, contraception in the developing world. I said that in 1961, way before you know, Bill, Bill Gates uh, um, developed uh, MS-DOS, uh, let alone the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, Gates, in some ways, is carrying out the, uh, um, the, the program that C.P. Snow advocated way back. And, and I acknowledge my debt to C.P. Snow in Enlightenment now as well. Another quiz. Who said this? A history of psychology by a man who shaped it, an explanation of powerful ideas about mental life, and a delightfully candid and reflective memoir. Hmm. Very candid memoir by psychology. I'm, I'm, I'm stumped. You said that. I did? About, oh, about. You said that about the Hope Circuit. Oh, about uh, uh, Martin Seligman. Right. Yes, okay. I did say that. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so Martin Seligman. Uh, was a, is a psychologist at um, University of Pennsylvania. Yep. He was uh, actually the, the uh, he wrote the, uh, the first article I ever read in academic psychology when I was an undergraduate. It was on, it actually relates to the, the other side of my, uh, my writing on, on uh, biological and evolutionary constraints on uh, emotion and, uh, and behavior. Uh, Seligman was an early advocate of the idea that uh, uh, not only humans, but animals are not blank slates. In an era that was dominated by um, B.F. Skinner's behaviorism, the, the idea that you could train any animal to do anything. I don't know if, it, if you remember the Skinner box, where you'd throw a rat or a pigeon in a box, and every time it would press a lever or peck a key, it would get a little pellet of food. Therefore, it would press the, the lever uh, more often. That was, at the time, uh, the dominant paradigm in psychology that animals and humans were blank slates, that everything came from conditioning, reward and punishment and association. And Seligman made one of the earliest arguments that uh, animals come wired by evolution to learn some things more quickly than others. So it's not that learning is uh, irrelevant. Obviously, we all, all learn, as do animals. But some things we learn very quickly with very little training. Other things require uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, exposures. So, so Marty has had a very powerful positive force on my life, and um, some of his recent work is about prospection. So uh, I think there's a recent book, uh, Homo Prospectus, where he, argue, where he argues about whether we're driven by the past or called to the future. And he makes some mental models about how you could potentially be called to the future. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a, uh, one of uh, a series of uh, interesting ideas that Marty Seligman has had over the years. He's also the discoverer of learned helplessness, that if uh, an uh, animal or a human um, is in a situation where nothing they do makes any difference, then they tend to uh, become passive. And even when there is something they can do to make a difference, they don't um, discover it. I thought that that's one of the causes of depression. He was the founder of positive psychology, the attempt 
uh, across all of psychology to not focus so much on pathology and mental illness and what can go wrong, but also what can go right. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, that he and I uh, re reconnected. Uh, and the idea of prospection, yeah. of anticipating the future, um, in part capitalized on a big discovery in neuroscience that the parts of the brain that are uh, responsible for memory also are engaged when we imagine the future. And a lot of human uh, <coughs> life experience consists of playing out um, scenarios, thought experiments uh, of what could happen if we did this or did that, that we, we spend a lot of time simulating the, uh, the, the future planning scenarios. So I'm gonna go to the audience in the, after this next question, I guess. Um, I have plenty more, but one of my questions for you is, uh, I'm thinking about the uh, success of your 10 books, and I don't know, but I'm guessing that Enlightenment Now is um, one of the most, or will become one of the most successful. Um, and that means that you've been on probably a whirlwind tour, and uh, compared to most of the people here, we do what we do in relative anonymity. In fact, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if of all of the businesses that we own in this room, that you haven't heard of any of them. Because none of the rest of us would have heard of any of our, each other's businesses very much either, except maybe for Allison's. I was, yes, I was gonna say Vermont Creamery. Yes. yes. Uh, and so I wanna just wonder, so how does it feel to be now have that public spotlight? Is it a net benefit? Is, is it a concern? What do you, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I'd have to say it's a, it's a net benefit. Uh, I, um, it, it, like everything, it has costs as well as benefits. Uh, it's, uh, I, I am kind of deluged with uh, um, invitations to speak, to be interviewed, and, uh, I, um, uh, I, and I have this kind of career on, on top of my day job, which is being a, uh, a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard. Uh, so it's um, often uh, hard to be um, to, to keep all the balls in the air. Uh, on the other hand, it would be cosmically ungrateful to complain about it, so I don't. <laughs> Great, we got it. Let me turn to you. Um, do any of you have questions for Steven Pinker? And uh, they're gonna pass you a, a microphone. A box? Yeah. A fuzzy box? So, oh, loud, sorry. Uh, I was interested in what you were saying about the hunter-gatherer mind and how that predetermines our, our uh, whatever, bias towards stories and things, and perhaps you could talk about that a little more. I mean, as a, as a leader and manager, I'm always interested in employee motivation and how some people have an internal locus of control and take ownership, and others have external locus of control. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so one of the, um, the basic uh, assumptions or axioms of evolutionary psychology, the uh, 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 idea of, of uh, trying to explain our thoughts and emotions in terms of what would be uh, adaptive in the environment in which we evolved, notes that the environment in which we did evolve for most of our history as a species was not what we see today, but, uh, but the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, which of, uh, that is getting your food by killing animals or, or uh, digging up roots, uh, living in small mobile groups of about uh, 50, living without uh, writing, without math, without uh, government, without medicine, 
without schools, uh, and that that was uh, applied to life everywhere until about 10,000 years ago. And since our species is about 200,000 years old, and of course before that we were um, other species, we were, were, were uh, Homo erectus and Homo habilis and uh, Australopithecus, um, then the sliver of human existence that has lived in a, an environment of government and contraception and 911 and schools uh, has been too brief to have actually left its stamp on our biological wiring uh, because uh, evolution has a speed limit in generations uh, and it works by the some offspring having uh, surviving more than others, some people having more babies than others. Everything that we acquire in our lifespan uh, is lost when, when we die and our kids have to start all over again. So that means that we are equipped for um, um, uh, not exactly caveman life, but certainly pre-modern life. Um, we uh, tend to protect our, our interests by uh, anger and revenge, uh, and it's a, it often takes self-control to uh, uh, use rules to, to um, govern our affairs. Uh, we speak and understand sp speech naturally just by being babies and listening to people around us, but we have to go to school to read and write. Our number sense is pretty much confined to one, two, three, many, uh, and to a general sense of more or less, but numbers like 37 require, uh, again, intense schooling and, and tons of practice and, and homework. Um, many other examples. We, and again, as, I, as I mentioned, we uh, are, are creeped out by, um, by spiders, but not by texting while driving. I'm sure uh, no one here texts while driving. Just yes. So. Uh, so the, the, now, even if you think that that's um, <clears throat> too much of a simplification, that even though uh, evolution works slowly, we have, many of us have, have uh, lineages that have been in um, developed societies for hundreds or thousands of years, and we're coming to learn that evolution can work more quickly than we used to think. Uh, but still, we, uh, the number of babies that we have doesn't depend on an appreciation of statistics by the, for the most part. Uh, and, um, and so the pre-modern lifestyle, even if it isn't a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, still uh, can explain most of our, our intuitions, our instincts, our gut feelings, our natural talents. And by the way, just to, just to uh, add, add one, one more um, uh, connection to what we've spoken about in, in the past. The, uh, for that reason, when I try to explain why we've become less violent, uh, why homicide has gone down, war has gone down, and so on, I don't think it's because our brains have changed, or at least not of the innate part of our brain, uh, just because many of these declines are way too quick to be explained by the natural turnover of generations of Darwinian natural selection. It, that has to be an environmental cause, such as more exercising self-control, um, more of a habit of, um, uh, of seeing the world through other people's eyes, an expansion of sympathy, and other um, changes in our environment. Can you pass the box, uh, Don? Here, pass this over I've got a mic. I've Thank got you. a mic. Does it work? Oh. Um, professor, uh, oh. I'm about halfway through your book, and, uh, and thank you very much for writing it and your own contributions to human progress. Um, my question is, 
it sounds like this book and the last two you've written have sort of been a path of discovery for yourself. And I wonder how they've affected your daily life and outlook and what your recommendation is for us on how the revelations of your book should affect our decision making and sort of look to the future. Yeah. Um, some, some of it has affected my uh, engagement with, it, with uh, institutions like, like politics, like charity, like um, uh, <coughs> other organizations. It's made me more, far more uh, of a kind of an activist and an optimist. I, uh, um, I think in the past I might have thought, well, um, what difference does it make? Uh, you, you know, give to charity, make yourself feel good, but are you, how many people are you really helping? And with... Um, say, a, a concentration on effectiveness. There's a movement called effective altruism of uh, directing philanthropic efforts to what actually quantitatively can be shown to help people the most. Uh, and I realize that, 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 that um, donors can make a big difference if they don't just think about the warm glow, but, uh, but actually look at, look at the numbers, look at the graphs, look at the uh, effectiveness. And by effectiveness, I don't mean percentage of the donations that go to administration, that can be very misleading because I don't have to tell people in this room, effective administration can make a dollar go much farther. But rather, actual measures of, how, uh, of what the goal is of the charity and uh, to what extent it succeeds at that goal, how, many, how much uh, clean water is delivered, how many um, lives are saved, uh, how many kids get, get to learn to read, uh, and so on. Uh, I'm also more, uh, more engaged, I think, in the political process. I think leaders can make a difference, and that, and um, uh, I'm more confidence that uh, international organizations like the uh, United Nations, for all its its follies and, and all the silly stuff that goes on in the posturing of the General Assembly, that this the ridiculous speeches, the the UN has uh, deserves a uh, uh, a lot of credit for. Uh, preventing World War III from happening and to that general reduction in war that, that I plotted. Uh, and that in almost every aspect of life, um, greater knowledge and a determination to identify problems and solve them uh, can pay off. It's uh, the, the kind of cynicism that, that says um, you know, bureaucracies always fail and policies never work and uh, nothing changes is empirically false. It's really not a question of being an idealist. Uh, a realist should uh, recognize that human ingenuity can make a difference, uh, not just in, in uh, our private lives, but in society as a whole. Chris, would you give one of the microphones to Don? Thanks, Chris. Um, you appear. Could you speak into the? You appear to be a techno optimist uh, throughout your book and in the speech that you gave today. And the gobs of data that you gave us about uh, progress is real. And uh, you uh, hand ringers are wrong about that. Um, I, I found it interesting that you gave a special pass to climate change and the need to uh, perhaps put a tax on carbon or the decarbonization, the deep decarbonization that you talk about. Most of the people in this room seem to have prospered in their businesses and their business decision making and what have you by acting on uh, decisions, choices that would appear to have a direct personal benefit 
And I'm wondering how you take an issue like climate change, uh, which is an issue of the commons, yeah. where us, we kind of benefit from uh, uh, not taking action on it individually. And you, you describe that in your climate thing. How, how, do we yeah. get, how do we get the society as a whole to embrace that as something we gotta solve? Yeah, I think, I think you have put your finger on it, why climate change is uh, such a difficult um, issue. Uh, namely, that any one of us voluntarily cutting back on our carbon emissions means that we pay a personal cost. We're hotter in the summer, we, don't, we forego uh, various luxuries, but it doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't make us any, uh, any better off. The benefit would come from everyone doing it and any individual uh, sees no particular benefit to their sacrifices. It's only if everyone simultaneously makes the sacrifice that, 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 that uh, there can be any benefit. And so no one has an incentive to cut back on their own emissions. That, that's why the solutions have to involve uh, policy as well as technology. And carbon pricing is the most obvious way to do it. That, as, as they say, it internalizes the externality, that is the uh, damage that we do when we emit CO2 uh, gets factored into our economic decisions if we have to actually pay for it. And uh, because no one owns the atmosphere, it's always tempting to inflict our costs on, on everyone else because no one makes us pay for it. Carbon pricing uh, would, and it would uh, <clears throat> have the advantage that uh, signals from the uh, the, the amount of uh, money that we have to allocate to, to uh, carbon would tell us what is the most effective way to reduce uh, carbon. If we simply act in our own interests with carbon pricing, then all of us will uh, reduce our emissions in the, um, uh, in the most effective way, as opposed to kind of symbolic gestures, which I confess I've been uh, uh, kind of roped into advocating, like unplugging your chargers. Uh, at night, uh, is that really going to make a difference? Probably not, but it feels like a conspicuous sacrifice. We feel noble, but it probably doesn't help anything. On the other hand, if the things that really um, cost money were factored into our decisions, we would automatically become more, um, uh, 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 more efficient, less, uh, le less polluting. Uh, I think that has to be combined, though, with um, uh, uh, with technological advances in uh, carbon uh, neutral and eventually carbon negative uh, 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 energy technologies in not just renewables like solar and uh, wind uh, combined with, with batteries, but with uh, nuclear, uh, which is the most scalable carbon-free energy source, and with many, uh, we heard earlier today about recapturing the uh, methane loss to uh, flaring, uh, that that and many other innovations are going to be necessary. And again, a carbon price would make those more economically uh, attractive. Hey, uh, Brian, not to put you on the spot, but uh, uh, you're in the business. Do you have a point of view? With regards to... With regards to Stephen's answer to Don's question, you're in the energy business. Do you also have a point of view? Absolutely, I don't necessarily, I, I can, well, I mean, this is not a good time to talk about that, but I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> not 
Uh, I think that there's arguments being made on both sides that that even potential actions taking to to stop anthropogenic CO2 could create more misery than than they're worth. And there's actually positive aspects of climate change, and there's been a lot of books written on that as well. So I guess I was kind of curious as I was listening to you and thinking about uh, like talking about self-sacrifice. You know, shutting off your air conditioner in the summer. Everyone shuts off their air conditioner. They're hot. They're miserable. They think they're doing something good. Is that is that progress? Is that is that happiness? And I guess the the the, the thought process I had is that you know there's a lot of things that we can do. There are things. Obviously, what our company does is you know it's an obvious waste. It's an obvious emission, and so we're doing a lot of a lot of recapturing of that. Now, the energy, the the gas, and the and the the flare gas that we're capturing is being reused somewhere else. So it's a it's in, in some ways instead of just being wasted, of course, at some other point, all the propane, the butane, and everything that we're capturing from those flares, and the methane as well, is being used as useful energy someplace else, and and there still can be some emissions from that as well. But at least it's it's not the waste, and certainly not the uh, the the venting of of methane, which is which is also a, a of course a more more uh, uh, I guess a, a bigger greenhouse gas has much more effect than CO2. So I guess from the standpoint, we've talked for hours about that. I, I actually know a person that's written books on uh, the, the, the positive impacts and the, and the fact that there's, there's smaller changes, there's longer growing seasons, uh, better growing seasons farther north, you know, more crops, more food, that there, is, that there actually can be some, some positive impacts. And, but uh, that, that's a whole other... Uh, so, so what about the, the thought that Brian had that, you know, we all can make a personal sacrifice and turn off our air conditioners and be miserable hot at night. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, that's the problem, and, and that is the, uh, the, 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 uh, the tragedy of the commons, uh, namely that what works to the advantage of every individual works to the disadvantage of, uh, of the whole group, the whole society. Um, there, are, uh, there, there are two different arguments about the, the, uh, the possible benefits of um, um, carbon-based um, uh, energy. One of them is just that en energy is good. Energy is, allows people to do what they want, to uh, live better lives, to, uh, uh, that there's a, a uh, you, you can't escape extreme poverty without uh, energy, and in the past, energy has meant fossil fuels. Uh, the other argument is that there are benefits to uh, global warming. There, there probably are some, but I think the, uh, all the um, uh, analyses that I've seen show that the uh, net effect is going to be highly negative. And there's, of course, a range of possibilities. We don't know where the planet is going to be in that range. Some of them are catastrophic, uh, and, uh, and most of them have uh, costs that exceed the, the, the benefits in global greening and uh, the fact that Canada will be able to grow, grow more tomatoes. Um, so I think that it's uh, prudent overall to adopt policies and technologies that would, will mitigate climate change, given the, we're, uh, as uh, uh, William Nordhaus put it, we're living in a climate casino and some of the uh, outcomes, some of the slots that the ball could end up in are truly catastrophic, even if we don't know for sure that the worst will happen. Uh, but that it should not require um, a, a kind of an abstemious uh, uh, withdrawal from, from uh, energy, from technology. I think that the, you know, Pope Francis's um, recommendation that we all have to uh, degrow our economy, renounce capitalism, go back to a simpler lifestyle. It's not going to work because, uh, first of all, people aren't going to do it, and because um, 
uh, a lot of the benefits that we have enjoyed um, come from deploying energy. There is an imperative to, um, to, to uh, tail off our, our uh, use of uh, fossil fuels as a source of energy and to try to get our energy in ways that don't expose us to these uh, catastrophic uh, risks, of which I, I, I think controversially nuclear is going to be part of the, the uh, mix. Until we get there, there then certainly uh, using the fossil fuels that we have in the least wasteful way possible is, uh, is a, a, an essential part of that transition. Having been partners for 35 years, I'm, here, I'm feeling the eyes of Mr. Linton boring in on me. That's great. So we'll uh, have the George Mock have the last question. One more. Thank you. Um, professor, the data, I, I, I love the data. It is so compelling and, and, and very optimistic. And there are two things I, I noted through the presentation. I mean, first, how much has happened um, in a relatively short period of time in terms of human progress in so many places, so many ways. Um, but you also made note of, of the human condition, biology, just the way we function, where we are from an evolutionary standpoint. And I couldn't help but keep going back to yesterday, we, we just uh, were, have been given three new iPhones. So here we are with this great progress where we have constant stimulation, constant access to information, constant access to things like um, crazy things going on in Washington, to plane crashes, to whatever it might be. Can the human psyche, the human body, handle all of that progress, if you will? How are we going to balance that? That's the, whether you talk about kids in school, or you, you, you talk about all of this information keeping us uh, stimulated 24-7. What, what can you say about that? Yeah, no, it is a, uh, it, it already is a challenge that most of us already feel of how we um, um, swim in this massive uh, tide of information. Uh, we'll, we're gonna have to rely on um, better education, more which uh, will take advantage of findings in cognitive science to get our Stone Age brain to grasp all of the uh, complexities of the, the, the modern dataverse, including better uh, graphics, better perhaps virtual reality. Uh, we heard from uh, Ned Sahin that, that this technology has enormous prom prom uh, promise, particularly in people whose brains don't work the way a, a typical brain does, but that there we have ways now of, uh, we will, we don't have them all now, but we are going to develop ways in which we can leverage these uh, leaps in technology to <clears throat> translate um, massive data flows of information into ways that our brains can appreciate. So we're gonna to have to mediate a lot of our exposure to the world through technologies that digest, that reformat, that present information in ways that we can uh, grasp. Artificial intelligence will, will uh, play a role in um, uh, recommending uh, outcomes and uh, decisions based on amounts of data that a single human brain could not possibly uh, grasp. On, on top of that, there's also, together with the cognitive challenge of how do we act intelligently in a deluge of data, there's also the emotional and interpersonal challenge of how do we live human lives uh, given the addictive tendency of our uh, technology, given the seductions of living in a virtual rather than a face-to-face uh, -face world. 
And I think we, we are going to have to develop new um, social norms, new life habits, new uh, expectations about uh, wise ways of living your life in a, an environment that's changing rapidly. I, I tend to think that, we're, that, that we'll be up to the challenge, but that it'll take a while. Just as if you go back you know, 50 or 60 years, there was the uh, terror that um, people will become zombies in front of their television sets, and that they will just people eat TV dinners, families will never will, will never talk. Well, th things changed. People adjusted. The image of the family of zombies eating their TV dinners, staring at the TV screen, became an object of ridicule, and people tried to avoid falling into that trap. Um, and and so we'll have to develop new norms and expectations about what's foolish and what's wise in terms of how we interact with our, our uh, technology. So on that optimistic note, Steven Pinker, I want to thank you for a very provocative afternoon. Will you join me in thanking Professor Pinker? Thank you, Stephen. Great. Thank you very much.